Chapter 2 of The Whispering Eye by G.T. Fleming Roberts. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Secret Traffic. If Delancey had stayed a little longer at the scene of his crime, he would have learned that his premonition was founded in truth. The Black Hood was hard on Delancey's heels that night. Advance notice of the stick-up at the Weedham plant had sifted up through the underworld grapevine to come eventually to Black Hood's ears. It had been very scanty information and late in its arrival, too late to enable the master manhunter to block the plan. All that Black Hood had learned was that robbery of the Weedham factory had been planned, which wasn't anything very definite considering that the Weedham Industries occupied over fifty acres of ground. When all hell broke loose at the south gate of the factory, Black Hood was actually at the northwest corner of the grounds. A cat could scarcely have seen him lurking in the shadows, his tall figure shrouded in a black silk cape, his head and face hidden by his famous hood. But his position did give him one advantage over those actually at work in the factory buildings. He could distinguish the rattle of gunfire from the racket made by the stamping mill. At the sound of the first shot, Black Hood had climbed to the top of the high-wire fence to leap into the factory grounds. Lightning had seen him streaking through the open areas between buildings, a weird figure in yellow tights, night-black shorts and hooded mask, his cape whipping out from his broad shoulders. He might have been mistaken for a man from Mars or a devil out of hell, yet beneath the grotesque garb beat a heart that was warm and human. Black Hood knew what it was to be a policeman with hands bound by red tape or political intrigue. He knew what it was to be a criminal, to be hunted as Delancey was hunted. Once he had been a young cop, determined to work his way up in the police force. One of the most diabolical fiends of the underworld had framed this cop for a crime. The frame had stuck. In his efforts to clear himself, the young cop had taken half a dozen lead slugs from underworld guns into his body. He had been left on a lonely mountain road, apparently dead, later to be found by that wise, gray-whiskered man known as the Hermit. It was the Hermit's vast store of scientific knowledge that brought the half-dead cop back to health. It was the hermit who gave the ex-cop a body with the strength of steel and a mind that was a veritable encyclopedia of scientific knowledge. It was the hermit who had sent the ex-cop back into the world to live a useful life, to strike back at the denizens of the underworld who had harmed him. So the Black Hood was born to live in two identities. By day he was a pleasant, mild-mannered young man known as Kip Berland to Barbara Sutton, Joe Strong, and others of their set. But at night, Kip Berland became the Black Hood, man of mystery, hunter of killers. Police who did not understand the unorthodox methods of the Black Hood suspected him of numerous crimes. The underworld that feared him wanted him dead. He was the hunter hunted. Once the secret of his dual identity became known, he knew that he faced either death from the hands of criminals or prison from the hands of police. Barbara Sutton, who merely tolerated Kipper Land, was deeply in love with the Black Hood. Yet even Barbara did not know that Kip and the Black Hood were one and the same person. Black Hood was not the only person at the Weedham plant who had heard the gunfire at the south gate. 
Joe Strong, newly appointed cameraman on Jeff Weedham's newspaper, had been standing at one of the doors of the stamping mill smoking a cigarette when the holdup had taken place. However, it required a few seconds for his dull brain to comprehend just what was taking place and from what direction the shots had come. Joe Strong had been trying to develop a nose for news. When he finally realized what was going on at the South Gate, he decided that here was a chance for some swell pictures that would prove to Jeff Weedham and Barbara Sutton that he was a natural-born newshound. He ran from the stamping mill, his camera bobbing from the strap around his neck and his tripod dragging behind him. He had heard that a crack news photographer could adjust a camera on the run, and he figured that he could do that and also mount the camera on the tripod at the same time. It was a very good idea, except that, like most of the ideas that sprouted slowly from Joe's brain, it didn't work. He was within 50 yards of the scene of the crime when he tripped over one leg of his tripod and fell flat on his face. When he picked himself up, he saw something that knocked all ideas of picture-taking out of his thick skull. A brilliant blaze of lightning showed him the unmistakable figure of the Black Hood bending over the body of Joseph, the watchman. He saw Black Hood's gauntlet glove hand closed on the handle of the knife that was thrust into Joseph's neck. Joe Strong had met Black Hood many times before, and, like the police, Joe was convinced that Black Hood was a clever criminal. It occurred to Joe in the darkness that followed the lightning flash that it was Black Hood who had stuck up the bank truck, slaughtered the guards, and was now in the act of finishing off Joseph, the only remaining witness to his crime. So natural was the position of old Joseph in his chair that Black Hood, too, had made the mistake of thinking that the watchman was alive. He had approached Joseph with the idea of learning something about the escaping criminals. He turned, now from the murder gatekeeper, to see Joe Strong bearing down upon him, fists bald, square teeth showing, his wide, coarse-featured face a mask of determination. He knew that Joe Strong, in spite of his clumsiness, could be a nasty opponent in a scrap. Joe closed in fast, led with his left fist in a blow that began way down and ended exactly nowhere. Nowhere because Black Hood sidestepped both the haymaker and Joe Strong. Gangway, muscle man, Black Hood's voice rang out, and then, like a slim arrow unleashed from a taut drawn bow, Black Hood sped up the Tarvia Drive toward where the low-slung roadster that belonged to Jeff Weedham was parked. Black Hood vaulted into the roadster without bothering to open the door. Jeff Weedham had left the key in the ignition lock. The black gauntlet-covered fingers of the master manhunter gave the key a twist, and at the same time, he plugged in the starter button. The motor responded instantly. Black Hood brought the car around in a wide-sweeping turn to head back toward the gate, had to swerve to avoid hitting Joe Strong. There were some of the admiral qualities of the bulldog about Joe Strong. Once his one-track mind got to functioning on a certain objective, it seldom digressed. And at the present moment, his was determined to stop Black Hood. As the roadster passed, straightening out of its looped turn, Joe leaped onto the running board, seized the wheel in one hand, and tried to get Black Hood by the throat with the other. The car left the drive as Joe yanked at the wheel. It bounded toward a round bed of evergreens that beautified the factory grounds. 
Black Hood released the wheel, stood up on the pedals, and at the same time slammed Joe across the face with the back of his gauntlet-covered left hand. The blow, the sudden stopping of the car, combined effectively to give Joe the shake. He went backwards, sailing through the air to land in the evergreen bed. Black Hood let the clutch slap in, and the roadster bounded back onto the Tarvia Drive. Perhaps none but the steel-nerved Black Hood would have tried to get through that factory gate, partially blocked as it was by the crippled bank truck. But the master manhunter could have driven a gas truck through hell's own fire. Instead of slowing the car to squeeze through the narrow opening, he tramped on the gas pedal and set his teeth for the shock he knew was coming. Because he knew that the space between the truck and the gatepost was too narrow to allow the roadster to pass unscarred. The right front fender hit the brick of the gatepost. There was a scream of tortured metal as the fender was sheared from the body. The impact dragged down on the speed of the roadster so that the rear right fender was only crumpled by the brickwork. But momentum was sufficient to carry Jeff Weedham's roadster out onto the road. Black Hood knew that the criminals had taken the road toward town. As soon as he had reached the south gate, he had ascertained this by a glance at the gravel shoulder of the road. Whoever had been driving the getaway car had started in a hurry, so that one rear wheel threw gravel in the opposite direction of travel. Just how much of a lead the rob and kill men had on him, Black Hood did not know. But he did know that Jeff Weedham's car was a gallant piece of machinery, capable of tremendous speed and so nicely balanced that it could cling to sharp curves. Actually, only a few seconds had elapsed between the time when Delancey and his killers had hit the road and the time when Black Hood had arrived at the south gate. The man called Shiv was driving Delancey's getaway car at a conservative pace so as not to excite suspicion. In this, Shiv showed more wisdom than did Delancey. "'You think you're going to a funeral?' Delancey demanded when his patience could endure the pace no longer. Shiv said, "'But you'll be going to one if I open this crate up. You want speed cops on your tail, Delancey?' "'To hell with cops,' Delancey snarled. "'Step it up a little.' Shiv speeded up to forty miles an hour as he rolled to the top of a little hill. A mile or so distant, the lights of one of New York's suburbs twinkled in the darkness.' We got lots of time, Shiv said. You're nervous, Delancey. You got ants. Up here at this next town, we slide into a filling station, get us a new paint job and new plates, all in the space of ten minutes. Like I said before, this job's a pipe. Delancey didn't hear Shiv. He was twisted around in the front seat, looking over the heads of Squid Murphy and the two other gunsels in the back seat. Through the rear window, Delancey saw twin swords of light from the lamps of another car not so far behind them. "'We're tailed now,' he said hoarsely. "Oh, nuts,' Murphy said from the back seat. "'We ought to make you get out and walk. Every time you see a car behind you, you get the ants.' Delancey drew his tongue over his dry lips. He said, "'Take a look for yourself, Murphy. That guy behind us is burning asphalt off the road.' Murphy and the other hoods looked backwards. The car behind was a roadster they could see in a sudden splash of lightning. And it was traveling like the wind. Delancey opened the glove compartment in the instrument board and took out a pair of field glasses. He got to his knees in the front seat, turned around so that he could sight out the back window. 
He tried to hold the speeding roadster in the range of the glasses, and when the lightning came again, he thought he could make out the figure of the driver at the wheel. He thought that he saw a sleek, rounded head closely covered by a black silk hood. He was almost certain that he saw a black silk cape whipping out from the shoulders of the lone man in the car. Delancey got cold all over. He gripped Shiv's shoulder convulsively, nearly sending his own car in the ditch by so doing. "'Step on it, Shiv,' he said hoarsely. "'I don't like the looks of that guy in the car behind us.' "'So you don't like the guy's hairdo,' Shiv sneered. "'And I should kick the bottom out of this crate just because you don't like the looks of somebody behind us?' Delancey passed the glasses back to Squid Murphy. "'See what you see, Murphy,' he said quietly. Then he turned around, hauled out his gun, and shoved it into Shiv's ribs. When I said step on it, I wasn't fooling. Jeez, Murphy said. That guy back there's got a hell of a thing on his head. Looks like a hood. A black hood, Delancey said. And I don't think I want to have anything to do with that guy. Do you, Shiv? Shiv came down on the gas pedal, and the car picked up speed. He said... All right, all right. I'm stepping on it, ain't I? If Delancey's car hadn't speeded up, Black Hood in the car behind might not have taken particular notice of it. But that sudden spurt of speed on the part of the gray sedan was a dead giveaway. Black Hood knew that he was hot on the trail. The big gray sedan carrying Delancey and his pals hit the suburban town at a scant 70 miles an hour. It ran by three red lights without shaking the roadster piloted by Black Hood. The streets were slippery with rain that was sheeting out of the black sky, and when Shiv tried to negotiate the next corner, the big sedan turned completely around. Delancey thought then that the chase was over, but Shiv had a trick or two up his sleeve. He spurted, took the car halfway down the block, heading in the very direction from which Black Hood was coming. Then Shiv whipped his wheel around for a short turn into the mouth of an alley. Delancey breathed again. He could see where everything was going to be all right now. The gray sedan bounced over the rough alley pavement, cut across the street at the next block, and rolled onto the concrete area in front of a large gas service station. The overhead doors beneath a sign which advertised car washing by steam ran up on their track as the gray sedan came into sight. Shiv steered into the washroom, and the doors dropped back into place. Delancey got out, his body bathed in a cold sweat. The proprietor of this gas station was in the employ of Delancey's boss, who had planned every step of the stick-up at the Weedham plant and the subsequent getaway. Delancey had supreme faith in his boss. For the first time since he had sighted that strange figure in the roadster that had followed them, he began to feel a little bit secure. Delancey entered the filling station office, followed by his mob. The proprietor, a huge bear of a man in brown coveralls, scowled at Delancey. He said, The way you came in here, it's a wonder you didn't bring a whole squad of cops with you. What's the matter, anyway? Delancey didn't answer just then. The proprietor of the station wasn't alone in his office. There was a dame. She was a tall, well-dressed woman with wax-pale skin and black hair that was parted in the middle and slicked back to a soft knot. She had peculiarly cold green eyes that were tilted at the outer extremities. Her lips were full, soft, and brilliantly rouged. Delancey jerked his head at the woman and asked the proprietor, "'Who's that, Blakey?' Berkey shrugged his big shoulders. "'She's from the boss. She's got a message for you.' 
The woman was beautiful, but there was something about the chilly expression in her eyes that made Delancey feel decidedly uncomfortable. She did not smile as she opened a black purse and produced an envelope which she handed to Delancey. While Berkey was opening the steam valves that would spray hot vapor on the car in the washroom, Delancey tore open the letter which the woman had handed him. Inside was a slip of paper on which had been typed the following. The bearer will ride with you into Manhattan. There was no signature, but in its stead was the crude drawing of an eye, formed by two bowed lines that represented lids and two circles, one within the other, representing iris and pupil. Delancey knew that the message was from that man he had never seen, the big boss, the man who knew all the answers. Delancey touched a match to the message. He looked at the woman with the cold green eyes. "'What's the idea?' he asked. "'I suppose,' she said in a quiet voice, "'that it will look less suspicious if you are seen driving a car with a woman beside you. "'Your men are to get into the baggage trunk at the rear, "'or else crouch down on the floor of the rear compartment.' "'Delancey snorted. "'That's nuts. There ain't any sense to this.' It was a clean job. We didn't mix with any coppers. No, she said, elevating her eyebrows. Nevertheless, you will carry out the orders. The eye knows what he's doing. End of chapter two.